Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 46, the Roman Polak episode of Back to Excited. And in order to celebrate, we got the Roman Polak of PPP, Kevin Papetti. <laughs> wow, hi, Fred. Oh, man. That's, that's <laughs> harsh. We shouldn't do that to our guests. We should let him be the, I don't know, Connor Carrick of PPP or something like that. Either way, you're, uh, we're trading you to Dallas's SB Nation site. Yeah, I'm sorry. Perfect. I guess the, the first time he was traded, he went for a haul, so maybe I'm the earlier version of Roman Polak. Yeah, we're, uh, who did we who did we take with those picks? Do you remember? Oh, that's put me on the spot. I'd have to look up. I looked him up pretty recently, but so it would have been like fairly late in the second round. I'm trying to think of who it would be. I think it was wasn't it two second round picks. It was for Polak yeah. and Nick Spalling. That was like that's an underrated swindle that Lou pulled off because that was insane. Two yeah. seconds for Polak and Spalling, like a 6D and like a fifth-line center. That's unreal. <laughs> I mean, most likely, we probably got like Emily Rassanen out of it, right? I, You probably. know what? Um, was one of them... No. Was one of them Carl Grundstrom? I'm trying to look it up, but yeah. it's so confusing to look up. It's that... all right. I feel like this is pretty trivial. It's not worth it. Um, So, we are going to talk about everything melting down on in Leafsland, basically uh things are not going well mm. and maybe this will be you know made obsolete in like six hours when the leafs play the uh arizona coyotes um maybe not maybe it'll get worse but yeah we're gonna talk about it anyway so uh, as you can tell we have kevin papetti on we have fuleman as always uh he didn't get to do his intro but he's still here is it even a real podcast if I don't do my, like, Dr. Nick knockoff intro? I don't feel like it's, <laughs> this, this doesn't even count. Anyway, but let's go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about things we want the Leafs to do, right? Like, it, think of this as, like, a three-week delayed New Year's resolutions. These are things we want the Leafs to actually um, go through for the next little bit, and maybe they relate to this little slump, maybe they don't. Um, but I'll start. I want the Leafs to stop playing William Neander on the fourth line, which is unfair of me to say because they haven't even started playing him on the fourth line except for like an abbreviated time in, in Florida. But uh, during the morning skate today, William Neander is indeed on the fourth line with Parland home and Frederick Gauthier. And look, this is not an uncommon thing. Neander spent some time on the fourth line in both his rookie and sophomore years. Marner did in his sophomore year. It's in the Babcock playbook to do this. But I'm not a fan of it. I wasn't a fan of it when it happened to Nylander in either of his first two years. I wasn't a fan of it when it happened to Marner last year. Because basically all the time, and this was very true with Marner last year, and I think it's true for Nylander now. What's wrong with Nylander is that he's in a shooting percentage trough. And I think playing him in limited minutes with low shooting percentage players is not the thing that is likely to fix it. The rest of his game has been fine. Per Evolving Wild, Nylander has the same relative to teammate, or teammate-adjusted Corsi uh, relative as Matt Barzal. He has the same uh, XG relative uh, as Johnny Gaudreau, uh, adjusted for teammates again. His play driving has been fine. He's been, he's William Nylander. I don't think he's missing anything right now except pucks going in the net. And I don't think this is going to get pucks in the net. I think it basically is a punishment. It's it's the the stick as opposed to the carrot. And... Mike Babcock is, in general, I think, very, very good at managing his players and managing their um, relationships with the media and the broader Leafs fandom. We see how consistently he's defended Jake Gardner, who is very polarizing. And I think that that's, that's smart of him, not just because Jake Gardner is good, but because um, it helps fight back against that idea that is pervasive in the fandom and can become kind of toxic. And the same thing is happening to Nylander right now. 
And again, in general, Babcock is good at this, but I think this is a misstep. Not just because of the hockey-related reasons, but because of everything surrounding Nylander right now. Yeah, I mean, if he's going to be on the fourth line, at least give him Trevor Moore or someone. To play yeah, or at least play him at center on the fourth line. Like, are you right. telling me that Frederick Gauthier is better at playing center than William Nylander? It's just, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy now. It's like, is he struggling because he's just not playing well? Or is, is this going to continue because he's playing with Gauthier and Lindholm? Like, he's, it's going to be very tough to break out of the slump when he's in that type of role. Yeah, I'm going to make a qualified defense of this decision, and I'm going to start by saying, obviously, William Nylander is not a fourth-line player, and he does not belong there in any kind of larger sense. He should not stay there. But watching the Florida game, the whole team, Nylander included, the whole team looked kind of like they were hungover. But the other thing that stands out to me about William Nylander's uh, most recent production slump is that he's missing a lot of shots. Uh, he's missing them at, like, an abnormally high rate. He's missing them about 50%. To be clear, you mean missing the net, right? Yeah, I'm missing the, like, missing the net entirely. And if you watch him, that sure corresponds with the eye test, doesn't it? Where he seems like he's trying to aim, like, seven feet in the air. And he's like, that's where he thinks the net stops. And, gosh, if there were ever someone who looked like they were kind of gripping their stick too tight when it came to shooting or holding on to it too long in the offensive zone, it's William Nylander, because I agree... By and large, he's been good in transition play. He's been good in a lot of aspects of the game that he doesn't really get a lot of credit for most of the time. But, yeah, I don't think that the shooting is there. So I'm almost wondering if there's a certain amount here of, like, look, here are Lindholm and Goche, two guys who play the simplest goddamn game you can imagine. Do not overthink this even for one second. Just fire it at the net. Shoot it into his pads. Just be a little bit less trying to score the highlight real goal and just play a dumb, stupid game. And then there's the the added element of like, okay, you'll work your way back up. You'll get your confidence back. The, the pressure is a little lower here, but also it's the Arizona Coyotes and it's their fourth line. So if this is sustained, William Nylander by himself is enough to make that an enormous mismatch in terms of quality of competition. And I wonder if there's a certain amount of just, I'm going to try and get Nylander some time against bad defensemen and bad forwards and try and let uh, let him maybe take advantage of that a little bit and maybe just get a couple of pucks going in. I, I think the same thing could be accomplished by keeping him with Kadri. Mm. Yeah. Maybe and so. I think if you're going to play him on against easy minutes, like call up Trevor Moore, if you want a good fourth line. He's going to have no one to pass to. I think what I struggle with is Nylander is going to play better. He is a 60-point forward, an established 60-point forward. Like It's almost like confirmation bias where once he plays better, you have Babcock kind of point to the fact that, you know, this fourth line was – this fourth line stint was just what he needed. It's like a tiger repelling rock, right, from The Simpsons. <laughs> well – I don't know if it's quite all the way down to Tiger repelling rock, but yeah, I mean... I, he's he's going to take the credit for shooting percentage regression. Like, I, I, I've made many... I, I, this is one idea I'll take credit for within, like, Leafs, Twitter, and Hockey Twitter. I've said for a long time that the biggest thing limiting Nylander right now is the fact that he's, an, he's a below-average shooter. And mm-hmm. this is more evidence that, okay, he, he's clearly... You know, every every shot that doesn't go in basically gives us a little more proof that, like, okay, yeah, his, his shooting results just aren't very good, despite a guy being a guy who qualitatively has a very good shot yeah but 
he is not a quote and or level shooter, which is what he's currently shooting. No, it's true. He's shooting three percent, and the reality is is that four shots on goal, like there's no way it's going to go in this level. That said, I keep thinking get the puck on the net because he's missing a lot. Like he's missing as much as anybody basically, except you know there are guys like Matthews and Kadri who miss a lot, but they also hit the net a lot more. They're just huge volume shooters. Nylander is taking his time, squaring up, and then just shooting for the sky. And there, that's a little bit the visual element of it, but that's also borne out by the missed shot numbers. And I keep thinking, how do you get the guy to stop overthinking it? How do you do something psychologically? Because notwithstanding this slump, which sucks for the whole team, this is a playoff team. This should be a playoff team. So really what matters in January is what sets you up for April. So I keep thinking if you're trying to get him to simplify his game and you've told him and you've shown him focus on this area of your game, I almost wonder if it's like, well, maybe this will work. Maybe this will do something. I agree shooting percentage regression is coming, but I think there's also something that he's doing that isn't helping him out a whole lot. More than 3% of his shots on goal should go in, no question. But, like, the way he's playing is a little bit not helpful. It's not just luck. For what it's worth, you've pretty much said exactly what Babcock just did. I'm just seeing this on Twitter where he says of Nylander, he knows he's getting in his own way. He's told me exactly what he has to do. Uh, and Babcock has said that he sees moving Nylander to the fourth line as helping him out by taking some pressure off. That's from Kristen Shelton. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I mean, Nylander's probably being the good soldier there. But I do emphasize, and talking about carrots and sticks with uh, Babcock... You know, he was saying, Nylander is a good player for us. He's a hard worker for us. Notwithstanding that people want to constantly accuse him of being lazy because he's very pretty in Swedish. But, yeah, I mean, I do think that this is at least 50% a motivational thing uh, or a psychological thing. As a hockey move for the best benefit of the team long term, obviously this doesn't make sense. And if it's sustained for any kind of length of period, I will throw this whole defense out the window. But I, I kind of get it, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't think putting him on the fourth line is going to take much pressure off. I think what it would take pressure off is him getting a few points on yeah, the board. And I agree. think the best way to do that is not by playing with Goche, but playing with Matthews. I mean, Yeah, watching... absolutely. But like at the same time, it's like that has been tried, for one thing. And two, it's like, okay, I want Nylander to get more points and more goals, but I also want Nylander to do something a little differently. And so I think this is more aimed at I want Nylander to do something a little differently. I would love for him to keep scoring and stuff like that. But, you know, I just keep thinking as a psychological thing, this makes more sense to me than as a purely hockey decision. And I don't think that, and to be clear, I'm not blaming that on anyone here, but I see this on Twitter all the time. Some people are like, oh, Babcock just hates William Nylander. And I'm like, well, that seems untrue to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. Generally, I, I think Babcock does a good job of these things. He's much better at this than I think I would be. Uh, he, I believe he, didn't he study psychology at McGill or something like that? I think uh, so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if he, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to do the, the nice little hedge here and say that whether he did or he didn't, he has like an interesting intuitive understanding of how to, how to use people in terms of like what's going to try and get them going. Yeah, and, so like he's yeah. not... He's not, um, I don't know, a raging asshole. I think, yeah. generally speaking, I think, and that that's partially why I'm so disappointed in this because I think Vine Archie does a really good job, and this is this is one thing I don't love 
that he does. And, you know, it's in his repertoire. He's done this before. Mm. I didn't like it then. I don't like it now. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. The, uh, the victim here could be Austin Matthews. I mean, he's going to be with Connor Brown now instead of William Nylander. And I wouldn't mind getting Brown a few extra points here and there because <laughs> I, I do want to trade him. But... Uh, at some point, I want to see that Matthews Nylander duo because we've seen what they can do at five on five, and I, I just think you, you keep them there for a, a long stretch and you just wait it out until until it starts clicking. Yeah, I I mean the the weird thing is it definitely has not clicked at all this year with mm-hmm. like that particular group. Um, I can put up the numbers shortly, but they're like I think quite a bit under fifty percent in terms of shot share, expected goal share, things like that. Yeah, I mean, we have a large enough sample on them, though. That yeah, like it, yeah. it's it's it'd be sort of insane if like okay, we have two years where they were like almost glued together for a large period of time and they were quite successful, and then like suddenly they both somehow forgot to play with one another. Like it, it seems more likely that it's a small sample thing. But yeah, they have in ninety minutes they have a forty-five percent Corsi together. Yeah, I just waited out. Yeah, Nylander has a sixty percent Corsi away from Matthews. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd still go Matthews Nylander. I've seen them play for way too long now. Yeah, I think that's I, I, how this ends up, though. Like in the end, like I think that that's the combination that we're going with. We're not leaving Nylander with Goche for any extended period, and like the knowledge of that is kind of what makes me maybe more placid about doing this for a game or two. You know what I mean? Like long term, you gotta put Nylander with Matthews or with Kadri or with like a high end center. Um, and I think it's going to be Matthews. So I guess what I'm saying is is maybe be patient, but I know it's kind of... <laughs> this is all actually a cover for how excited I am for Frederick Goche, who I secretly want to get like 35 <laughs> points this year. So this is all just according to my plan. Hey, but... he only needs to go point per game the rest of the way to do it. <laughs> and I believe that he can in defiance of his entire history. All right. But yeah. Uh, Kevin, you had a uh, an interesting idea about Nazem Kadri. Speaking of him, you want to get rolling on that? Sure. So I think my one idea for the Leafs is I would make Kadri the matchup line. I think we've seen him do it in the past, like last year in the in the previous year. He had some success in that role, and I think it's certainly something that gets him motivated and, and gets him up in the morning. I think with Kadri specifically, I mean. You're going in to the playoffs knowing you're probably going to face Boston in round one. And if you if you move on, it's probably going to be Tampa in round two. They're going to have dominant first lines, whether it's Bergeron's line or whether it's Kucherov's line. I don't want Mitch Marner to be the guy going up against them. I think he's good defensively, Marner, but I don't think he's the guy you want with the, with the 45% Corsi against really tough competition. I think you want him and Tavares in the offensive zone as much as possible. I think... I mean, Kadri has good numbers this year when he's going up against this easier competition, but I don't think he's the best bet to really take advantage on the scoreboard. I think Tavares and Marner, you get them in the offensive zone as much as possible, you're going to have success. So I'd go towards uh, some sort of kadri Kapitan combination as the matchup line. I think Kapitan's speed is is really good on the counterattack, and, and if he's in his own end, he's got the speed to, to close in on guys and, and take away space, so... I know Tavares is getting a lot of the matchups right now, and there's there's a good reason for that because he's a heck of a player, but I'd go towards Kadri as a matchup line and then let Matthews and Tavares just go off on, on easier competition. Yeah, I think that that's worth trying. I, I mean, I've always liked 
the uh, the Kadri matchup line when it was first sort of suggested a, a couple years back. I remember being like, oh, this will be exciting. And I've generally been satisfied with how that worked out. Uh, in the Boston series, Kadri kind of screwed the, po- the pooch by getting himself suspended on a dumb hit. And that did not do us any favors. But uh, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Um, is there something for the power versus power usage of the Tavares line um, that makes it worthwhile? Or is that just, you know, he's thinking that Kadri can kind of capitalize? I, I mean, up till this point, up until Nylander comes back or came back and now he needs to get going again. Um, Kadri's line uh, wingers were often guys like Lindholm and Brown, guys who don't really score very much. So I'm wondering if that is sort of a factor that plays into it somehow, or, or I don't know what's going on there. But I guess, uh, I, I guess my issue with the power versus power is the Leafs don't really have a first-line caliber left wing. Mm-hmm. And as good as Tavares and Marner are, I mean, Bergeron and Pasternak, they have Brad Marchand. And then Tampa just has, I mean, JT Miller, uh, Braden Point. I mean, they can they could stack up a better line than the Leafs can, I think. Tavares and Martin is a great start, but they don't really have that first-line caliber winger. They're, they're more going with a second-line caliber winger, so it's tough to go power on power and, and tilt the ice in Toronto's favor. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Sorry, go ahead. So, I, I agree in principle, but I think you have to be careful about that because when you get too locked into that matchup, you end up overplaying Kadri, right? Who's, who's an excellent player and, you know, probably our uh, fourth best forward right now, uh, especially with Nylander in the slump. But the two guys ahead of him, or two of the three guys ahead of him, are also centers, right? Um, and we saw this last year where Kadri was was matched up really hard on top lines a lot of the times, and we'd get situations where we played ourselves, right? Where we would spend so much time chasing that matchup that we weren't playing our best players as much as they should be played, especially if you're going to put relatively weaker wingers with uh with Kadri that means not only are you going to give less time to say Matthews and Tavares but you're giving less time to Marner and Nylander by extension too if we assume those are who they end up with right Right. so I I think it makes sense but you have to be careful about not overdoing it um I think you have to to be strategic about it but yeah it it, it can't be like a hundred percent hard match type of thing um I think it'd be pretty close but then you run into that problem, right? Where like your other the Pasternak line, or sorry, the Bergeron line, or whatever you want to call it, um, they're playing like twenty four minutes a night, <laughs> or not at even strength, but like at even strength, they're playing like a huge amount of time, right? More than you would want to play Kadri, ideally, given the composition of this team. You uh, don't want Kadri out there for a hundred percent of those minutes. I I want it pretty close. I mean, I think come playoff time, I'm looking to play the fourth line center as little as possible. So I don't think ice time is going to be too much or it shouldn't be too much of an issue for for Matthews and Tavares I think you get them extra shifts when you can and I, I'm, I'm just not too worried if you have to go with Tavares the odd shifts against Bergeron like by all means but uh, I think in general when I look at Boston specifically in that first round I see Krejci I see Forsbacca Carlson and I go okay these are two centers that the Leafs could really capitalize on um, so I don't know about a hundred percent match, but I'd go pretty close and then try to get Tavares and, and Matthews as much minutes as possible. I'd have to look at how many minutes Matthews got last year come playoff time. 
I'd have to look. I, I think he was actually close to... The, there was much said about, like, oh, he didn't get as many minutes in the playoffs, but I think it was almost all uh, because he was on second unit PP. Yeah, he right. was... He was first... I'm looking at it now. He was first in uh, time on ice for 5-5, five five, but Kaji yeah. was suspended, so I'd have to... It looks pretty close. Yeah. So Do I you mean, worry that... with the matchup thing that you're letting the opposing coach dictate the game? And, like, I don't just mean in terms of, like, okay, Bergeron goes out, um, you know, that means we're playing Kadri more. I mean that means you're making more aggressive line changes, like you're constantly trying to get your guys off, you're pulling your other guys off earlier than you might otherwise do. Like, do you worry that there's any kind of detriment in terms of just the way your team is rolling in terms of their ability to make plays because you're chasing that matchup so hard? Like, I... I, I the, yeah. I think in the past there was more of a reason. Like, when Matthews was a rookie and Tyler Bozak, we've seen him play defense. <laughs> so I think when they're out, you kind of panic and go, okay, we need Kadri out, but... Now, if I mean, if you didn't have the matchup for a shift and Tavares was out there against Bergeron, like it's perfectly fine. But I'd rather that be the more of a rare case than than the norm. I think right now it's it's certainly the norm where you're chasing the matchup still, but now it's Tavares out there rather than rather than Kadri. I mean, so all of this depends in terms of whether it's optimal on like the numbers that you feel these each of these lines would put up against one another, essentially, right? Where like you need um, the you need the Kadri line to do not hor- even if you it's possible for them to be worse than the Tavares line against Bergeron even and still have this be optimal assuming as you think that like the Tavares line is more situated to capitalize on weaker competition than the Kadri line is right so it's like just putting numbers out of my head if Kadri even goes like forty eight percent against Bergeron but Tavares goes sixty percent against Krejci in terms of goals right then that like at that point it starts toting the least play, uh, favor whereas. If it's 50% for, uh, for Tavares against Bergeron and only, I don't know, 53% for Kadri against um, Krejci. Obviously, in both of those cases, those numbers are designed that like the Leafs are winning either way. But you would be better off with Tavares, or say with Kadri playing Bergeron in those, with those numbers, right? So it, I, I, I don't disagree in concept, but it really depends on how we think they're going to do like, on a quantitative level. It's very arguable either way, I think, is what I'm trying to get at. I mean, I think with watching Marner Tavares in the offensive zone, those are the guys you want with the scoring chances. Ideally, if I have my choice between who gets the 60% Corsi in a game, I'm going with Tavares Marner. Over- oh, yeah, no, of, of course. But like the thing is, the we it's not, a, it's not like a choice of, oh, we can choose them to get 60%. Like, it, it, it depends on how they will actually do against that given competition, right? And if, if Kadri is for example, much worse against Bergeron than the Tavares line is, and I'm not saying that's the case, but if that is true, then this idea starts to blow up, right? The, it, it's contingent on Kadri being able to be um, better than his kind of like slot in, in the Leafs lineup to a, a pretty impressive degree. Right. I think that's what Kadri's been doing the last two years is taking yes on and tough Yes and no, right? Like his, his, his shot number, his raw shot numbers have not been amazing the last two years. And it, it, it's really a testament to Kadri's brilliance that they've been even respectable can, when you consider the line mates he he, um, he has. I'm more inclined to do this now than I would be <clears throat> if Kasperi Kapanen hadn't emerged the way he has, right? If 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 we're still playing Kadri with I don't know Connor Brown and Parlin home, mm-hmm. I'm like no, I do not want this at, at all. 
right? Because yeah, that, that, that line is not going to do well against Bergeron. With right. Kapanen in there, it's a good enough line that I'm comfortable with them, even against strong lines. So I, I, I do tend to agree with you on this. Yeah, I think this. I think I agree with you there too. When, when it was, I think it was Levo Kadri Brown to start, and then it went to Lindholm Kadri Brown, and that line just didn't really have a good enough puck carrier on on the line, and they spent way too much time in their own end. I think whether yeah, it's, and then, when they did get into the offensive zone, they they had no threats there besides Kadri shooting from everywhere. Yeah, it was a it was a tough time. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Stress yeah. me out. Yeah, I actually remember just when I was looking up missed shot numbers for Nylander purposes also, but Lindholm also misses the net a lot of the time when he tries to take shots. So I don't know if that's partly that uh, the scorers are crediting when he makes like a dump in or something as a shot attempt, but... They definitely it, don't unless he's doing it on net. Like I, Yeah. So one thing I, I like doing, watching games, this is like the nerdiest thing in the world, is that I'll have the NHL play-by-play open. And this is why I, I'm also like very keenly aware of how um, suspect NHL shot tracking data can be in small samples because there's absolutely times where I'm like, okay, he definitely shot there or he didn't shoot there. And the mm-hmm. locations are really, really hit or miss. Um, but that's just a function of the, the reality we live in. Um, but in most cases, like dump-ins are almost never recorded as shots unless they're like okay. actually shots on net. Like, then they would go in if the goalie wasn't there. All right, well, that's that's more to their credit then. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think certainly, God bless Parlindholm, but he's probably not <laughs> really moving the needle in an offensive direction. So, yeah, I, I broadly am in favor with trying the Kadri match thing again. So here's the thing that maybe people may or may not like. I think the Leafs should be pursuing pretty hard on Dougie Hamilton. That seems kind of obvious, but by that I mean... Structure a deal where the biggest piece you're giving up is Kasperi Kapanen. And I think that that's not implausible anymore. And I would do it. This so, Nylander punishment has gone too far. First you're putting him <laughs> on the fourth line, then you're taking away his best friend. I know, I'm sorry. It's, it's for a good cause, William, I promise. So Dougie Hamilton, we've discussed him before, but just a quick recap. is a 25-year-old right-handed defenseman for the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, he's got two years left on his deal after this one at a 5.75 million cap hit. He's really, really good. His shot numbers on Carolina are the best uh, among the whole defense group. And Carolina's shot numbers as a whole are bananas. Uh, some people have suggested that Dougie Hamilton gooses his shot numbers by just shooting from anywhere all the time. But uh, helpfully enough, Tyler Dello looked into that a few weeks ago and found that nope. He's really not doing that. So Dougie Hamilton is, as far as we can tell, a quality first pairing defenseman on the right-hand side. He's an odd dude. You may remember the controversy about how he liked to go to museums, which still kind of baffled by that. But that was apparently part of the reason that the Carolina, sorry, the Calgary Flames traded him away. But anyway, you slice it, he's a really, really good player. All that said... Carolina doesn't have enough scoring. They're in like a thousand year shooting percentage drought, I think it is at this point. Like it's been going on since the Middle Ages and Charlemagne was crowned king. But they appear to be making some moves here. They're still on the fringes of the playoff hunt. Um, They have these dominant shot numbers that make you think they really ought to be better. And they could stand to add an offensive minded forward. Now, the Carolina Hurricanes are not going to want to give up Dougie Hamilton for... 
anything short of a star player. But what I think is happening now is that partly from how they're using him, partly his rep around the league, I think he may be increasingly devalued relative to what he actually brings. I think Kasperi Kapanen's value is going up. Um, and so I think that there may be a bit of an opportunity there, especially as the Hurricanes kind of get some desperation to try and make the playoffs this year. They mis- they recently made a move where they traded Victor Rask, who was kind of a depth center for them, for Nino Niederreiter, who's a very, very good two-way winger. Who's a first-line winger. Yeah, um, he's outstanding uh, as far as the fancy stats go. And so they're going to, I assume, put up even more absurd Corsi numbers in the future. But Kasperi Kapanen can score. And I think that might have some appeal to them. And I'm not saying he's enough by himself to pull Dougie Hamilton. But I think if he's the prime piece going the other way, that deal is not out of the question now. And it's something that I would really look at. So So one thing I'll, I'll mention. Sorry, I'm just going to cut you off there, Kevin. Um, Kapanen actually has the best uh, context adjusted. So teammate adjusted, zone, competition, all that. The best uh, context-adjusted Corsi and XG numbers among forwards for the Leafs this year. He's been every every line he's been on has had a significant uh, lift in terms of how successful they've been. He he's a legitimately excellent player right now. Um, I don't take giving him up very very lightly. Uh, that I just want to add that in there. It makes him very Carolina Hurricaney as well. Uh, Kevin, what were you gonna say? Back on May 9th, I did one of those who says no polls, and the mm-hmm. deal was so Hamilton. Three years of Hamilton, and the Leafs would also take on Troy Brower, so about a 1.5 bio. Um, and then what the Leafs would give up was Kapanen, Grunstrom, and a first. And this was the rare case where Calgary says no one, uh, back mm. when he was on the Flames. And I think now, I mean, Brower aside, I think Kapanen, Grunstrom, and a first gets that deal done. I, I, uh, I think Kapanen's value is way up. Uh, and rightfully so, he's had a great year. But the, the struggle I have with trading Kapanen is I think he's one of the team's best defensive forwards, and I think he really helps the team from a defensive perspective, whether it's on the penalty kill or whether it's just... I, I just think he's got a great ability to go up against top lines uh, with his speed and, and that counterattack. So I'm just not convinced that Hamilton's going to be available. I know he's been mentioned in the rumor mill but Carolina's a team that seems to be certainly aware of of stats like Corsi and as we just saw with the Niederreiter trade they just paid a, a haul to get him I'm kind of skeptical that they're just going to turn around and deal him this quickly yeah I generally would agree with you but the thing that I would note is that they're under new ownership in the past year and just everything that I get from Tom Dundon is that he's like a really aggressive kind of alpha male, forceful guy um, who might not be super patient with, you know, Eric Tulski or whoever's in the office telling him, just wait, just wait, the shooting percentage is going to regress. And so I just keep wondering if there's an opportunity there. Uh, to be clear, though, I kind of agree with you in that, like, if you're conscious of how valuable Dougie Hamilton is, and they sort of are, you probably shouldn't trade him. But I do wonder if there's an urgency in that front office now coming down from up above that maybe wasn't there previously. That maybe makes this a little bit more credible than it might otherwise be. So the rumors that I've seen reported 
is that they're they they know they have a strength of def- or a surplus of defensemen, and they want to just trade a defenseman um, to reallocate some of that value to a forward. And depending on the, it's like the, the best deal they get for any one of those guys is what they'll take. But I think, as Kevin said, they're they're I think they'd trade Hamilton if someone stupidly overpays for him, mm. right? So I think like they're listening in that sense, but not in like an actual practical sense. And I think, and Kevin will probably get to this, but I think Falk is the guy that's most likely to go. Yeah, I was just about to say, I think Falk is certainly... I mean, they seem to know how good Dougie Hamilton is. They traded a, a haul for him. Uh, it'd be a little bit weird if they dealt him this quickly, but with Falk, he's he's going to be paid $6 million this year and next year, uh, but his cap hit's only $4.8 million. So I think for a team like Carolina, he's a $6 million player. They're not a cap team. They don't really care about the cap hit. Uh, so if they can turn around, deal Falk, and then go out and... and sign a six million dollar forward or a six million dollar goalie uh i think their team improves so from the least perspective i think you you have a chance to to get a six million dollar player at 4.8 i mean falk would be quite the steal at 4.8 uh when you mention falk i think the first reaction you get from least fans is well i want hamilton or, or brett pesky but Carolina seems to know that these are good players, and I don't think you're going to steal Hamilton or Pesky out of Carolina. So I think Falk, with with a year and a half remaining, I don't think they can re-sign him. I mean, how much do they want to spend on, on right-shooting defensemen? So I, I don't see him re-signing. I don't think they'll let him walk for nothing. So I think Falk's going to be the guy that moves, uh, and you'll probably get a pretty good return for Falk. But the question now is, I guess can the two teams line up in terms of value or does he go elsewhere? I don't know that I want to pay what I think Falk is going to cost. That's the thing is I'm just not that excited about him. And like, I know that he's fine. He's not a bad player by any means, but I don't know. And I, I recognize, you know, Hamilton, I'm counting on a misevaluation, which is probably a dangerous thing dealing with a general manager who is not Peter Chiarelli. But I just... I don't know that I am as keen on a year and a half of him enough to pay what the price is going to be. Right. That's uh, as, fair. Yeah. So. I just think Hamilton, like, I think someone is probably going to pay for Falk. I think they'll deal Falk rather than Hamilton. I just think Carolina is a team that seems to know how good Dougie Hamilton is. I have a tough time seeing him moved. And, I mean, I could be completely wrong on this, but I would think that they go, I think Falk's by far the most likely to be dealt. And I think. I mean, a guy like Van Reem, Trevor Van Riemsdyk could be available too if the Leafs wanted to go that route. It's just a matter of, I, I think the most likely option by far is, is going to be Falk getting moved. And then it's up to you really if you want to be in on that or if you want to see him go to a different team. TVR is kind of, he's one of those from the Isle of Shelter third pairing defensemen, right? Like, he has really nice numbers. I, I just, I don't want to pay for him. <laughs> yeah, they're going to have to... I mean, if it's Falk or nothing, I think the least. I think they'd be at least interested in Falk. It's just a matter of, do you go Falk or do you go someone like Racco Gudis or or rental like Nick Jensen? I mean, you can you can weigh your options, but uh, at some point, I think they'll they'll make a splash. I just don't see like Hamilton, Pareko. I don't think those guys are are likely to be moved. Pareko's Pare- like such a pipe dream. Oh yeah, there's no way Pareko is happening. He would be so perfect and beautiful, but. The thing about Hamilton is that I, what I will say is, one, there's the ownership situation in Carolina, and two, something about Dougie Hamilton 
seems to rub hockey men the wrong way. I'm pretty confident it's not anything I would care about at all. Uh, and, you know, I'm biased probably as one of those nerds who thinks museums are cool. So what do I know? But, like, just the fact that he's been traded curiously kind of twice now um, from Boston to Calgary and then from Calgary to Carolina makes me wonder if there is a potential there for a misevaluation. But, th again, as Kevin says, they probably know that they have something good there. Um, so it, it is. It's, it's an ambitious trade, but... Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's something to hope for. And mostly I keep thinking the word is the Leafs have said Kasperi Kapanen is by and large not on the table. And by and large, that's the attitude I want them to take because I think he is a really valuable player. If it comes to a conversation about Dougie Hamilton, it's a bit of a you have to give to get for me. And I would certainly be willing to look into that. But I agree, you know, it, it's, it's tough. Yeah. The question is then, is it a one-for-one -one swap? I mean... If the Leafs are adding an addition to Kapanen, then all of a sudden you're... Yeah. Uh, it, it, it could get expensive real quick. Cause... And it sounds uh, ridiculous to be like, oh, you know, why, why are you so hesitant to give up Kasperi Kapanen? One thing that... <clears throat> there's a couple reasons why Kapanen is, like, so valuable is he's very young. He's going to be cost-controlled for a while. And he also, is, because he is... This is kind of a perverse thing, but because he is behind the depth chart of two other right-wingers at least we think in the long term um he's and he doesn't get a great power play time he's never going to put up the counting numbers he needs to get paid very very well he's i, th I think captain's gonna be one of those guys who is pretty much always on a value deal because right. the, the, the things he's good at don't necessarily get you paid that may be true to some extent but i i will say i've seen Quite a few fan bases salivating at the prospect of Kasperi Kapanen kind of being jarred loose this summer. And I, I do kind of wonder if it's just harder for those guys to fly under the radar, even despite the counting stats thing, which does matter. Because they're in Toronto. Because, you know, if you're like a competent 10th forward in Toronto like Connor Brown, you get like seven laudatory articles about what a great guy you are. You know... I do wonder if it's if it's harder to get that misevaluation. That said, I certainly hope so. And the reality is, if we're not getting someone of the Hamilton caliber back, I really want to keep him. So, yeah. Um, that said, uh, more generally, is it a good thing to panic in trades, Arvin? What do you think? Should the Leafs just make a deal to make a deal? No. So this this is the other thing that that brilliant segue by Fuleman got us. Into. I know. I it was smooth. I don't think anyone even noticed. <laughs> no. This is why we're the podcast professionals. Um, my the other thing I want the Leafs to do is I don't want them to panic, and I think Kyle Dubis will not panic. I have a lot of trust in him in that regard. Um, this has been a tough stretch for the Leafs. It's also one that even now I'm not worried about. Granted, they looked terrible against Colorado, and they looked hungover as shit against Florida. Like, <laughs> and I don't mean that as like, you know, as a catch-off for, oh, they looked slow and, lug and sluggish. They looked actually hungover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, we have, obviously, we have no idea. It's just like, it would not surprise me a little bit if they went out on the town a little or something or or whatever, but I don't know what they were doing. Yeah, but, so, like, yeah. those two losses that the Leafs absolutely deserve to lose aside, the Leafs have been very good since William Nylander came back. We've been harping on this for a while. Their numbers are very good in every respect except goaltending and shooting. And I'm not worried about this team's goaltending long-term. I'm, I'm not worried about this team's shooting long-term. I'm not worried about this team's power play long-term. We're a good team. Yeah. I'm fine if the Leafs don't do anything. If the prices aren't right, if 
Detroit's demanding something ridiculous for Nick Jensen, for example. If there's no trades you can make to upgrade the Leafs D, that's fine. That's fine. It's not ideal. We're a team with flaws. But I'm totally comfortable rolling into, into the playoffs with this team. How about you, Kevin? Are you comfortable with that? I'd go after. I think you got to do something for the defense. I don't think you can go into a playoff series with with Hainsey at 38 years old going up against the top line. I think you can do something like, even if it's Nick Jensen or Mark Pizik, I think you can get something for a reasonable price. Yeah, and to be clear, I'm not saying don't do anything. Like I'm, I'm fine making a an addition if. It's a decent price, but don't overpay just because you feel desperate and like, oh man, we we can't we, we're boxing ourselves into this situation because of whatever. And, and I'm also fine with, if at least want to experiment with what they have on the roster. Like this is one thing, one of the few things that annoys me about Babcock. I wish he would try things more. Like, and this Especially is less true now. End. This is this is less true now because we are sort of back in the playoff mix in terms of it being somewhat tenuous of whether we're going to get in. Uh, at least superficially, but like, try stuff with Dermot. Try stuff with Riley Gardner. He does that sometimes, but I'd like to see him do it more. We've seen the same defense pairings for seems like forever. Like just once, I want to see a game where you know something's different. Like even if it's just one swap, I'd like to at least see it from an evaluation perspective. Yeah, just give us more works. information. Right, um, and like I'd like to see Dermot in the top four, whether it be on the right side how he handles it uh, just for the future. I mean, and you have Callie Rosen sitting on the Marlies down there. And I mean, he's a player who could help the Leafs. So at at some point, someone's going to have to move over to the right side um, unless you just wait for Gardner to walk. But it's just anything. Like, can we see even whether it's Riley Dermott, whether it's Riley Zaitsev, Anything different, I'd like to at least experiment a little bit just so we know what the best option is come playoff time. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a legitimate complaint, especially given that there's a willingness to mix up the forward lines to try things to motivate guys. And we have this kind of cast-iron defense group that really feels like it doesn't go anywhere. And Well, they're so I successful, do... you can't break them up. <laughs> you know, for a while, I actually almost got it for Ron Hainsey, and this is like the worst way to evaluate things because his goals for numbers were so good like I, I do get the instinct of like well this pairing is wildly outscoring its competition but I I do agree that like I don't think that that like Ron Hainsey is not doing all that well that's the reality he's he's looks like he's kind of burnt at this stage of his career trying to play at this level that said I know uh Kevin kind of has a point he's saying like I don't want to go into a playoff series with Ron Hainsey as my first pairing right defenseman Neither do I, but then it's like, you know, do I want to go into a playoff series against the Toronto Maple Leafs with David Krejci as my second line center at this stage of his career? Something like that. Like, I feel like every team has some position where they get to say that. And as much as it worries me, as it makes me a little uncomfortable, I'm not all the way convinced that that's a fatal flaw. I I don't think so, anyway. I will... So when I'm... One of my points that I'd like to see the Leafs do is I'm willing to pay a little bit extra for a difference maker, whether it be Petrangelo, whether it be Falk. I'm willing to pay a little bit more. I think in the in the past years, we've seen Lamorello do things at the deadline kind of for the sake of doing it. And I get that 
it's it's hard to not do anything at the deadline. You're watching your rivals improve. I mean, last year we saw Tampa get McDonough. We saw Boston get Rick Nash. It's tough to, I mean, it's tough for your team to see, okay, we're not getting better and all of our rivals got better. So I think I don't want to see what we've seen in the past, whether it's Boyle, whether it's Placanic, uh for a second-round pick. I mean, you're just not moving the dial forward very much. It, it helps to have a nice fourth line, but whether it's Lindholm or, or Goche, I think they can at least be respectable in those minutes. So rather than getting either a fourth-line center or someone like Michael Furland, uh, I just don't think he's a huge upgrade over their current top nine options, Hyman, Janssen, Marlowe. So I'd rather spend a little bit more and use that second-round pick for a difference maker rather than doing the the small upgrade trade that doesn't really help you all that much. Yeah, so I agree you, with that, especially with Ferdinand. He sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've heard, like, the asking price for Michael Ferland is, like, it one, his asking price on his contract negotiations. Someone reported that it was, like, he's asking, like, $6 million a year. And then... And I feel I'm a little worried here because I can't remember who said the follow-up, but they were like, I've heard it might even be higher than $6 million a year. And I'm like, is everyone involved in this drunk out of their minds? Or are they just really carrying water for his agent? Well, I mean, there's carrying water, and then there's like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here because that's not a reasonable amount of money for a guy whose career high in points is like 41. And that, like that, he's had that the one time. Like, he's broken 30 points in one season in the NHL. I'm just like, ugh. I, I, I and do his not name is spelled t- weird. Do you really want yeah. to spell Michael that way? Like, I really, I don't want him at least because I'm just going to screw his name up in a bunch of recaps. How's it spelled? Yeah. Uh, M-I-C mi- or looks, H-E-A-L instead of H-E-A-L. It looks H-E-A-L. like McKeel. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about this, man. I mean, it took me a long enough time to get Riley correct. And, you know, like, that was a necessary sacrifice for a defenseman. I'm just not willing to give up that kind of spelling consistency for a left wing. So yeah, I don't, I think Carolina's going to rob a team in a Furland trade. And I'm, I'm just going to be curious to see where Furland signs in the, in the off season. If these were the Edmonton Oilers, if these were the, if this was <laughs> the Burke or, or Nona's days, I'd be terrified right now thinking Furland's going to be a leaf. I mean, they, yeah. they dodged so many bullets, even with Alsner and, and Josh George's, <laughs> Oh, man. So, I mean, I think Ferland Simmons are the two I really want to avoid. If you can yeah. get a, a first-line yeah. winger, then maybe you, you consider it. But I, I think you look for a impact defenseman, and I'm willing to pay a little bit extra for that um, rather than going with, with the marginal upgrade route. That, that doesn't really help you all that much. Are yeah, you willing no, to give up our first for a rental defenseman? I don't so like a one season guy, but there isn't really a, a name out there that that would warrant that. Like, no, well that that's what I'm saying. When we're talking about like Nick Jensen or something, no, like, you're not talking about first for Jensen. But like, if there was a very good defenseman, like if Petrangelo was a one year guy, then yes. But there's not yeah. like Carlson's not getting dealt. Uh, Anton Strawman's not getting dealt. Like, there's no one. You're not going to give up a first for Edler or or Bomeister, so I wouldn't. God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Bomeister is dead, man. I don't think that guy's alive anymore. Right. But, 
So yeah. I just don't think there's a name on the market where you'd give up a, a first for a, a one-year rental. But two years, yes. I mean, I think you have to be open-minded to moving that first, especially where the Leafs are. But there's just not a name out there right now that that would really warrant giving up a first for. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just what I'm trying to place in terms of, like, you'll pay a little bit more. And I'm like, I, I am, I'm with Kyle Dubas on this one where I'm down on the idea of paying much of anything for, like, a rental. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just, I'm not, even, you know, Nick Jensen is a perfectly fine player. He would make our defense group a little better. But I, I'm just like, like, I can't see that I'm really going to want to pay that much for a guy who's here for one run. I think with you know Jensen, I mean? the appeal for me is he's not really a household name, obviously. So I think you might be able to extend him at a reasonable rate. Uh, so from Jensen's perspective, if you trade for him, say it's a... A, a late second um, or say like a third in a prospect then all of a sudden you you if you can extend him at a reasonable rate all of a sudden that deals looks a little bit better um, mm. otherwise like I guess my the, the players I'd be targeting specifically would be um, obviously Petrangelo I think Justin Falk I wouldn't mind as a, as a plan B um, and then even if it was Mark Pizik from from Florida um, or Spurgeon, I'm I'm fine with a slight overpay. I mean, you're gonna have to get a right shooting defenseman at some point. Uh, it would be, I would prefer if they did it ahead of this playoff run, just where they are in their in their win curve, uh, mm. just to give them a better chance at beating Boston. Yeah, I, I mean, that. like the way I'm thinking in terms of like not panicking, it's like, don't make a short term move for the sake of it. Right. So that it most directly applies to rentals for, if you're making a, if you're going for a Petrangelo or a Spurgeon, that's a big ticket item that is going to help the Leafs both this year and next. And I wouldn't consider that necessarily a panic move unless you're like trading William Neander for them. Um, right. I think so, my assumption is the Leafs are going to do something at the deadline. I think we can assume that, and I think in, in even in the last years, it was almost like, let's do the bare minimum. Let's go out and get Placanic and Boyle. We're not going to be in the big rental market, but at least we can say we're doing something. I'd be surprised if Dubas did absolutely nothing. I think he's going to make some sort of deal. I'd rather it be a slight overpay for someone like Falk or, or even Petrangelo or, or Pizik or Tanev, um, rather than that the bare minimum trade, whether it's a second, like a late second for, I mean, you could go get Boyle again. Uh, I'd avoid that. So I'd, I'm okay with a slight overpay. It's just, let's get a de- defenseman that can help us this year and next year. Well, on that note, actually, according to my notes, we were about to discuss just one such in Jake Muzzin. So do you want to ride with that for a bit? Sure. I think Muzzin is, it's going to be interesting. I mean, because he's a left shooting defenseman, I'm just curious to see who would move over. Uh, he is here this year next, and for four million, I think that cap hit's really appealing for the Leafs. They're gonna need every dollar they can get, and and Muzzin's more of a. I mean, he's probably a six point five million dollar defenseman. You're getting him for four, so it, it there is quite a quite a good fit there from that perspective. I think in terms of the return. I wouldn't want to give up Lilligren for a year and a half of Muzzin, especially because Muzzin's not the perfect fit with his shot. Uh, but I think Bracco would be a good fit 
for for Los Angeles who really could use a playmaker uh, on that team. They're kind of dying for some offensive talent up front. I don't know if Muzzin's, Muzzin's the perfect fit, but Los Angeles hasn't made a ton of great deals. I didn't like their Hagelin trade. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if you could get him, if you can kind of get a good deal on him. But I, I do think they'll prioritize right-shooting defensemen, and, and maybe Muzzin's more of a fallback option. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. As an aside, I know they won't do it because teams just don't generally do this sort of thing, and their ability to do it would be crowded a lot by no-move clauses. But I think the Kings should light everything on fire now, or at least this summer, and deal out a lot of guys for the best possible return. Like, I really think that that team has too many guys who are too expensive, who are assigned too deep into their 30s. And if they're this bad now, I don't think it's, get, it's getting any better. So that's kind of my aside thing on Jake Muzzin. But I, I certainly think they should be looking to sell him right now. Um, yeah, and I'd have interest in yeah. Toffoli, too. I, I love Tyler Toffoli. So if, I'd agree. If I'm, if I'm running the Kings, I'm doing a fire sale pretty quickly. Um, even Jonathan Quick, I mean, he's 32. You're not. You're probably not going to be good when he's in his early 30s. I'd, I'd be looking to move Jonathan Quick. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right now. If he'll waive, I will try. I would trade Drew Doughty now. Like, and I know that that's like really aggressive, but I just keep thinking I don't like how the wind is blowing in that organization right now. Yeah. yeah. I, he he wouldn't waive, but. I mean, probably not. I mean, unless he really wanted to go somewhere the hell else, but he seems pretty miserable right now. So you never know. <laughs> this is something yeah. that I think you've said Fuleman a couple of times, but like if Drew Doughty was European, he would get so much more shit for the season he's having. He looks awful. I, there are a couple of really memorable gifs where he's like, there's one where like, hold up. Did you just say gifs? Yeah, I, I don't know, say, man. Get the fuck off this podcast. Hey, I'll fight you right now. <laughs> it's the point gifts. is, it doesn't matter what it is. There's a couple of very nice multi-second short video clips. There we My go. My God. Ugh. There's a lot of hostility today. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm too angry about Neander. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're normally a much more peaceable marriage, I assure you, Kevin. But, uh, yeah, so... He had one uh, shift where the opposing team was just, like, passing around on a really dangerous play. And as the camera pans over, you just see Drew Doughty being like, well, fuck this shit, I'm out. And he just goes for a line change in the middle of the play while they score with him, with his back to the play, halfway to the bench. Like, he just clearly was like, I don't care anymore. Like, I don't want to be a part of this. And I was thinking if he were named Eric Carlson, for example, he would be <laughs> playing that gif slash gif slash whatever the hell for the remainder of his career as a C he's not good at defense he should never win the Norris uh, I, I don't know like I, I'm kind of staggered by by the fact that he did that but that's sort of an aside but the larger thing is is that he signed for 11 million way into his 30s and so I would be very scared of that if I were Los Angeles yeah, yeah. they could really use the a good draft lottery this year I mean that team but those contracts is not looking pretty. So if they can get, they're gonna need Hughes or Kako to bail them out, I think, because 
it's it's not they don't have very many good contracts on that team right now yeah um so we were gonna talk about a couple of things pursuant to, to following up jake muzzin but uh one thing that came up yesterday i wrote an article just sort of generally thoughts rambling about the least recent uh slump and one thing that came up is systems so we've talked about mike babcock and his decision making you know we kicked this off with him moving Neil into the fourth line and all that sort of thing. And someone commented saying, you know, they were talking about the systems. A lot of the criticism of Mike Babcock is the system. And yet there's not much good system writing out there. I think this is actually a good day to have Kevin on because I've seen Kevin write about systems before and he's pretty good at it. Um, and I'm wondering, one, you know, I'm thinking about why there isn't more good systems writing out there. People who really understand what the system is. And two, kind of what are the Leafs doing? I think that the game of hockey is so fluid and there are so few set plays like that start from a stationary position where you can see where the guy is standing and say, oh, that's a plan. That's a, a system thing. So you'll see it on the power play when the guys are stationary or off the draw when they're going for a quick shot. But by and large, it's hard to piece out unless you kind of notice trends over a long time. So when they talk about the Leafs system, a lot of people talk about the stretch pass because that's the thing that's notable. That's the thing that makes people upset. And that's the Leafs kind of long bombing passes to catch a guy probably on the strong side of the ice near the opposing blue line um, so that he can get in on a uh, hopefully an odd man rush. And the Leafs do this a lot. Sometimes it works really well and gets them a lot of break chances. And sometimes the opposing team seems to get hip to it and cuts it off. And the Leafs get bottled up in their own zone. I think that it makes a lot of sense to try to do that if you can succeed a decent percentage of the time. Uh, I don't have a huge problem with the stretch pass. Like anything, you can overuse it. If everyone knows you're going to do it every time, that's a problem. But that's a high reward play. If you get a guy in behind the defense, that's better than just pushing the puck through the neutral zone manually. Um Kevin, I'm kind of wondering what you think of the Leafs systemically right now. Like, do you like what you're seeing? Are you seeing things that you think Babcock should change? I mean, I th I hear the criticisms for the stretch pass all the time. I think in, my, in defense to Babcock, he could only do so much with the players he has. So I think with, with previous Dubas teams, whether it be Sault Ste. Marie or whether it be the Marlies, is, I mean... The center's down low to support the defensemen. You have fast, good transition wingers that can co low in the in the offensive zone. Sorry, in the defensive zone and and support their defensemen, support their center, and really lead the transition game. Mm -hmm. Right, right now you look at the Leafs lineup and you you can't really expect Zaitsev, Hainsey, and Ozaganov to be making those short effective breakout passes. I mean, it's just not their game. You can't, whether it's Roman Polak from last year or Connor Carrick, you just haven't had the puck movers uh, to really thrive in that area. And I think from a forward perspective too, I mean, they haven't had, like last year with, with Tyler Bozak, he's not really, I wouldn't call him a strong transition player or a strong defensive forward. So I do think they've, they've moved away from players who maybe weren't so good in the transition game or in the two-way game and, and, and slowly improved in terms of forwards. 
Uh, I think Janssen and Kapanen, I really like what they do it, ever since their time with the Marlies. Uh, they're fast enough to, to get in the right positions, and and because they have some grit to their game, they can contribute at both ends of the ice and, and lead the transition game. I mean, Connor Brown, Patrick Marlowe at his age, Lindholm and Gauthier, I mean, I, I do think there's some weak links there in terms of transition play, and... Come playoff time, if you have Trevor Moore up, if you have Tyler Ennis back, I'm not sure if he will be back, but I do think you can make improvements there, and I do come to Babcock's defense a little bit here, just because he can only do so much with the players he has. I think the Tavares, Matthews, Martin Nylander, those duos, they're quite effective in terms of a transition game, but... If you don't have the talent, it's it's tough to lead that effective transition game that I think everyone wants to see. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, as a prior for a lot of these discussions, I come in saying Mike Babcock might be wrong some of the time, but he's not stupid. And so a lot of the times when the answer seems to be just like, Mike Babcock is doing the same thing night in and night out, and it's not working, and he must be an idiot. You, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible. He's just persistently wrong about some things because he is, he's a stubborn guy as almost all NHL coaches are, but it makes a lot of sense to me to do some of the things that he does. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think a lot of it comes down to execution and decision-making. Um, I, I mean, I've complained before about Nikita Zaitsev trying to do this and not really succeeding. And seemingly defaulting to just, like, the, the get-it-the-hell-out-of-there play where he just, like, rifles at the length of the ice. But, yeah, it's just systemically I haven't heard a really great case for why the Leafs are fatally flawed. Except to say, well, the stretch pass doesn't work sometimes. And then I think, well, the stretch pass, for all its faults, has this team as a well-above-average shots, goals, expected goals team. So, you know, to argue systemically, you can just always say, well, they ought to be better. And I get some of that, but I would want a more rounded argument before I was really willing to say, okay, the fault here is the system. Yeah, I think if you, like, Toronto's defense just struggles to move the puck. I know, like, Riley's very good at skating the puck out. I wouldn't call him an elite passer out of his own end. And, I mean... Gardner is, is obviously very hit and miss. Uh, I do like Dermott in that aspect, and I think he's had success in the third pairing role, but it's not like he's playing heavy minutes right now. Uh, so I just think if you want to be that better transition team rather than relying on the stretch pass and, and that dump-out strategy, I think you want to... I think you do need... like Babcock is going to need a little bit of help there. I think... You get him a defenseman or two that can transition the puck a little bit better, and you might start to see a better transition game. Uh, maybe Babcock starts to get some credit for for better systems just because he has better players. But uh, I do think it's. I guess my argument is. Like, what's the suggestion? You always hear, okay, the Leafs need to change their systems. Well, what's your suggestion? Mm -hmm. And when you have these pieces, it's tough to really plot out a plan that's that's going to be successful just because you don't you can't really rely on these defensemen to transition the puck out of their own end all that well 
Mm. That makes a lot of sense to me, to be honest. Arvin, any thoughts on this? Kevin and I have been batting the ball back and forth a couple times. No, I mean, I think I largely agree with you guys. I mean, Kel surprise. Um, <laughs> the big thing is what Kevin just mentioned. Like, it's easy to say, oh, X didn't work. Stop doing X. Well, what are you doing instead? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and the fact of the matter is, like, hockey systems are not... This isn't rocket science. Uh, I'm sure I've dealt with more complex topics in my life, but it's not common knowledge, right? It's not something people are expected to know. It's not something that necessarily is... has. We do a great job of educating because it, 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 it takes some some talent and some experience to see it like i i would say that i don't really have any a leg to stand on when it comes to offering advice about systems i know kind of the bare minimum and that's it um so i think a lot of the talk about the leaf systems boils down to their course isn't high enough and i don't like it yeah um and you know i don't think that that's very well pronounced i do think that there's a big point there about the discussion of systems is so bad. Like, you know, the, the neutral zone trap was talked uh, a lot about when I was, like, kind of a young hockey fan. I can't remember the broadcast ever explaining what that was. And maybe it happened, but, like, I had to go and look it up myself on the internet years later. You know what I mean? And so you'll get things like um, the one three one, for example, in Ottawa. Again, like, that's a notable example of a system. But it was never really well explained beyond, hey, one three one, And, you know, most of the chatter is going to be a bunch of horseshit about, like, oh, this guy isn't trying hard enough. That guy isn't trying hard enough. This guy isn't trying hard enough. And 99% of the time, it correlates with his PDO. Yeah. Going, back, know, to I, the, going back to Nylander, yeah. this is what annoys me the most. I think it's very fair to criticize Nylander this season. He is not, like, the production hasn't been there. You can absolutely say, you know, he needs to be better. But the moralizing about it, it's like, oh, he's not trying hard enough. He's not getting to the right areas. It's like, if someone says that, I, honestly, I kind of just like lose respect for them as a hockey mind. Mm. Because it's, I, I don't understand what player you're watching if you're watching someone who is not trying. And when you see what, or when you watch what you need, Andrew. He's very obviously trying. He's very obviously getting to good spots. All the numbers back this up. The eye test backs this up. It's just moralizing based on his PDO, as you said. And that, that's a huge problem, not just in player evaluation, but in team evaluation. Yeah, it'll lead you astray time and time again. I do remember someone was, uh, they tweeted at Kristen Shilton, who is a Leafs reporter, and they said, does Nylander ever get to practice early or stay there late? And they were kind of like, see, he doesn't try. And Shilton said, he's usually the first guy on the ice. Like, (laughs) he's, like, he doesn't want to not be successful. Um, Say what you will about him. You don't get to the NHL without some level of work ethic. And I'm not saying it's equally perfect all the time. I'm not saying, you know, especially as young men, a lot of these guys don't mess around or, you know, otherwise waste their time and are not 100% productive. But by and large, they're trying. And, you know, if the extent of your analysis is not enough effort and that's it, I think you've defaulted to something that is easy to understand as a substitute for really figuring out what's going on. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So we also, since we have Kevin here, Arvin and I don't see that much of the Marlies. Like, I'll see a couple games a year. I don't, I can't speak to to Arvin's frequency, but I don't think it's too much more than that. I actually live Um, in Rico Coliseum. I'll have you know. (laughs) He actually has like a nice small apartment in the press box. But Kevin uh, does keep an eye on this. So we thought this was a good time to check in with the Marlies. 
Kevin, what do you think of how the Marlies are doing this year? Like, just what are your general thoughts? Sure. So I think to give a bit of a of a summary here, you look at their roster and they have two point per game centers, Chris Mueller and Sam Gagne. So I know those aren't really the big names that everyone wants to hear about because they're veterans that probably won't ever help the Leafs. But if you're going to talk about the Marlies, I think Mueller and Gagne are kind of the two building blocks that have to be mentioned. Um, the other top forward on the team, Trevor Moore, uh, he's been fantastic. Obviously, we got to see him in the NHL a little bit, but they basically go Mueller on one line, Gagne on another, and Moore on the quote-unquote third line that's not really a third line. So uh, it's a very balanced attack. I think they have one of the better forward groups in the AHL. Um, so how it stacks up... Uh, the line that's probably been Toronto's best this year has been Mason Marchman, Adam Brooks, and Trevor Moore. Moore's playing on the right side. He can play either wing. Uh, he's been fantastic. So, A, he's taking advantage of his scoring opportunities. He's got 19 goals in 31 games. Uh, but he's also just relentless on the forecheck. Uh, good skater, so it helps his transition play. Uh, he generates a ton of takeaways. Now, they don't track takeaways at the AHL level, uh, at least not publicly, but uh, I have little doubt that Moore would be leading the team and, and probably one of the leaders in the league in terms of takeaways. Uh, and then just in terms of neutral zone defense, I think what we've seen with, with Janssen and Kapanen is they're players that can be relied upon in all situations, and I think Moore is that same type of player. Uh, so it, it opens up doors at the NHL level, whether you need a penalty killer or you need a, a guy in a checking line role, he can take that, take that responsibility. Uh, Marchment is a big power forward. He's an elite agitator, so he pisses everyone off, like almost like Marshawn levels. Uh, he's not the fastest player or the best playmaker, but he's got good hands on the power play, playing the net front. Uh, he can make things happen in the offensive zone, but if you want a player next year to kind of add some sandpaper to the lineup in a fourth-line role, I mean, he could do just that. He could play him with more, and, and we know that duo can be successful. Uh, Adam Brooks, the center on that line, I, I feel like he gets a bit overrated at times. Like He's a great kid, but you see, like I mentioned on Twitter, people suggesting that he, he could be the fourth-line center on the Leafs. I mean, he's the third-best center on the Marlies. It's, it's, it's quite clear. Um, he doesn't really drive his line. He, he, he penalty kills, but I guess the issue is he's a little bit undersized and he's not that fast, so... It's just a matter of what's he brings to the table. He's a smart player, but he really needs to take a step forward if he wants to enter the, the NHL conversation. Um, they also have, I mean, they have quite a lot of winger depth. So Carl Grenstrom is a player who, I mean, we could see him next year when the Leafs are in the cap crunch. Uh, very strong, uh, good shot, but can't really pass the puck. So I think you get a little bit of, um, I, I compare him to, pretty similar to, to Leo Komarov, where he can skate, uh, he can he can score some goals for you. Uh, many of them are going to be garbage goals, but he's got a better shot than Komarov. Uh, I could see him up next year, but this is a guy who's, who's pretty physically developed, so it's just a matter of how much better is he going to get. Um, and then Pierre Engvall's a, a really tall forward, not too physical, despite being 6'5", but I mean, good shot, fairly good skater. Um, He's got 16 points in 36 games, so he's not really knocking on the door and pressing that much, but uh, he's starting to pick it up as of late. 
Uh, and then you have players like Timashov, Michael Carconi, uh, Josh Joris, uh, Colin Greening that kind of fill in the depth role. So they have a very good forward group, uh, one of the more high-scoring teams in the NHL. It's just a matter of they've had zero goaltending this year, and if they get Michael Hutchinson for a sustained period of time, uh, they have a chance to be successful. So you mentioned that Moore uh, has been taking advantage of his shooting opportunities. Is he like a high shooting percentage guy? Does he have an above average shot? Um, or is it is he getting a bit lucky or is he just like kind of a, an elite shot generator, the, generator at the AHL level? Uh, I, would, I wouldn't say he's an elite shot. He plays in the middle of the power play, uh, almost in that Kaji role, and, and has quite a bit of success there. So he shot only 9.4% last year, but he's up to 19% this year. Part of that is obviously luck-driven, but it's not. he's a player where it's not his scoring that's really impressive. It's more of his all-around play. So one of the maybe the best two-way winger on the Marlies and a guy that you could really project that into an NHL role, whether it be penalty kill, uh, whether it be in a checking line or, or a fourth line that wants to play in defensive zone starts. Like He can do anything. So I don't think he's going to have the offensive firepower to be a, a top six guy but he's a good complimentary piece and I think it's really the the defense that's that's so impressive about him him and Marchment so more in Marchment just I don't know their coursey but it's got to be quite high uh, they both generate tons of takeaways they're they're strong in the cycle and it just seems like they have entire shifts in the offensive zone yeah, Marchment is a guy I find interesting. Um, I think he has sort of a clearer roadmap to a roster spot than a lot of players because he provides something that the Leafs don't really have a lot of with his physical profile and his, I guess, agitation. Um, is he a guy you see you could see being a Leafs fourth liner next season? Yeah, I think when you look at the Leafs cap situation, like they might only have a $3 million fourth line next year. Or, or a $2.5 million fourth line next year. So I think you have Trevor Moore. You know that Moore works well with Marchment. I think that's that's something that could really work in Marchment's favor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and think then you could play them on the fourth line with William Nylander, too. Right. <laughs> he's going to need wingers. So, um, <laughs> I mean, he's not... I don't think he's going to set the world on fire, but it'd be nice. Uh, he could help them as a net front presence on the power play. Mm-hmm. He could add some sandpaper and I know some Leafs fans would, would like that and to a point I, I agree with them like it wouldn't be I wouldn't hate to have a little bit more physicality uh, as long as the player can somewhat play so I mean Marchman and Grunstrom are probably going to battle for a spot at some point next season uh, I think Grunstrom probably has the edge but Marchman certainly in the conversation especially if there's injuries um, One other question I had so you mentioned that like the, the Leafs you said that in your opinion, the Leafs, or the Marlies, rather, three best players have been um, the two veteran centers, Neuter, Gagne, and Moore. Would Brocco be fourth? Because his numbers superficially look very nice. Yeah, Bra- I forgot to mention Bracco. Bracco is... This is a player I've watched for a long time now, dating back to when he was in Kitchener and, and even when he was on the U.S. Under-18 team. So... I was very high on him at the draft. He's a phenomenal passer. Like, Mitch Marner's a better passer, but other than that, he's probably the second best passer in the Leafs organization. 
So it's wow, that's very high praise. Just from a strictly passing mm-hmm. perspective, not necessarily playmaking, because I know Tavares can can generate more with his feet mm-hmm. and just his strength on the puck. Um, but just from a pure passing perspective, he's outstanding. So it's a guy who you could, I mean, last season I was upset with Keefe, um, just because the Marlies didn't, despite their success, they didn't really have a good power play. And it was so obvious, just give the puck to Bracco and get open. Like, that's basically the Leafs mantra with Marner. It's every two seconds you're giving the puck back to Marner, let him set something up, and you have scorers to kind of supplement him. With Bracco, they just weren't using him enough, and now they're starting to use him. But I think the question is, you do... He's he's very undersized, so he's not really going to win a ton of battles, and I don't think he's going to be on him on heavy, uh, tough minutes at the NHL level. Uh, but if you can get him in the offensive zone, he can make things happen. I could see him putting up a lot of points at the NHL level, but it's just a matter of you have to put him in a position to be successful. So I think if you put him with two play drivers, two guys that can really help him in terms of getting him in the offensive zone and, and help him in terms of something like Corsi, then, yeah, I think he could he could put up quite a few numbers just because or quite a few assists, sorry, just because he's such a good passer. Um, I think he's going to be of interest to teams at the deadline. I mean, he's 21 with point-per-game production at the at the AHL level. But I do think he's been a little bit lucky this year. Uh, he was snake-bitten to start the year, but after that it's just been, it seems like everything's going in for him right now. Um, and he does play with normally one of Mueller or Gagne, so um, playing with a player of that caliber is certainly going to help his, his production. Uh, but he's been good. I mean, he's a he's a legitimate NHL prospect. It would be tough to get rid of him in a trade, but given Toronto's depth at, at right wing, I wouldn't be surprised if he was at least available uh, in a move. I see. Pullman, do you have anything to add here? Not really. I mean, that's all very interesting to hear. Um, I, I do know that a lot of people have been kind of talking up Broncos' passing ability to me for a while. And uh, I guess we're finally seeing it bear some fruit. Um, but yeah, he does strike me as like the ideal guy to throw in in a trade. There, I saw a tweet once that was talking about like, there's one prospect in every organization that is the dividing line where it's like, he's the guy you're always okay including. And the next guy above him is the guy you get really uncomfortable about throwing into trade proposals. So you see this guy all the time. And I think that Brocco is exactly that guy for the Leafs, where he's good enough that you could see why other teams would be interested, but we're deep enough at right wing that you can also see why we're more willing to part with him than maybe other players. Right. So, yeah. If the Leafs had, I guess the issue with Brocco that I see is the Leafs don't really have a high-end left winger that can really help him in terms of play driving. I mean, Mm. if, if he was in a position... Like, if you put Bracco with Matthews or Tavares, he's going to rack up some assists. It's just a matter of, is that the best? Like, you're not trying to maximize Bracco's production. You're trying to ma- maximize the team's production. So, he could run a second power play if if you want kind of put a Nylander almost away from the puck. Like, compared to basketball, it'd be, uh, you'd be, you'd have Nylander off the ball, essentially. Mm. Um so, I mean, he's an interesting prospect. He's someone who I've ranked pretty highly on our top 25 under 25 through the years. But um, certainly, I'd certainly at least 
if, if teams like Carolina or Los Angeles teams that need offensive help are, are really interested in him, I think you at least have to listen. Okay. Well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And we're certainly grateful to have your Marley's expertise on here because uh, I think it, it adds a lot that we don't necessarily have. Like, I just, you know, watch the odd game here and there, and I'm like, oh, that guy looked cool. I think he's the best player now. So, <laughs> yeah, much appreciated. Yeah, it's, absolutely. I think on the back end, too, um, this is a good team. I mean, they haven't had a goalie. Like, it's been painfully bad, their goaltending. Like, it's tough to overstate how bad their goaltending's been. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it's a good team on paper. They, they don't have Sandine and Lilligren right now. They're both injured, but uh, Sandine's been phenomenal. Just a, a player who it looks like he'll really help the Leafs when, he, when he's ready. Uh, just his ability to help his team escape the defensive zone and, and make those quick, short passes. I think once Sandine is up and running, uh, once he's NHL ready, I think all of a sudden the, the system looks better uh, just because of the style of game he plays. Um, mm. The other thing is... Callie Rosen's this team's best defenseman by a mile. He's an AHL All-Star. He's one of the best defensemen in the league. I know I've seen it going around how, I mean, Timothy Lilligren's course, he's quite good. Uh, but I would say that's largely because he plays with Callie Rosen. Uh, I like Lilligren as a prospect, but he's not... I, I don't think he's been one of their team's top two defensemen this year. I know his, his course is good, but at some point it's like, when Mark Mathot played with Eric Carlson, you're not going to give Mathot all the credit for, for a good Corsi. You're going to give it to Carlson. So I, I give most of the, the credit to Rosen, even though Lilligren's been okay when when healthy. All right. You heard it here first. Kyler Rosen is the new Eric Carlson. He is. That's, that's, that's the headline <laughs> of this podcast. They're both Swedish. It's done. It's done. Uh, <laughs> all right. I think... Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, oh, sorry. You got a follow-up point. I think Rosen's going to be in the NHL next year. He, I wasn't very high on him when he first came over. He was pretty mistake-prone. Uh, he's pretty light, so he's more of a power play guy. He also just – I found he only shot the puck. Like, Yeah, could, that was the one thing yeah. I noticed in his NHL sample. Like, He was really trigger-happy, and like, he, his, the pucks he shot had magnets um, to opposing shin pads. Yeah, it's, it's like 1% like, – the worst possible shots to take, he was taking them. Yeah, he yeah. he was like the um, J.R. Smith of of hockey, <laughs> except well, J.R. Smith what? can make those shots. I hope J.R. Smith doesn't listen to the podcast. He's gonna be... <laughs> he's definitely like eighty two minutes into like the the third biggest Leaf stats podcast on the internet. But uh, one thing I will note about Kelly Rosen, and I'm totally gonna crow about this, even though it's a complete fluke. I watched him and I read a bit about him when he first came over and I was like, defenseman who can skate, going to be high on him. And I'm going to totally be borne out on him based on that extremely sophisticated metric of guy looks like he skates good. And so I'm going to rely on that in the future. Does guy look like he skates good? He does. Yeah. He's a star. Rosen's one of those guys who looks really good on those like YouTube uh, EDM mixes of highlights. <laughs> yeah. So it's always like dead mouse and stuff like that. And it just looks like, yeah, this guy feels like he's going to be in our top four. But yeah, you know, it's, it's cool to hear that he's doing well. So yeah, a couple more rants here while I'm talking Marley's. Um, okay, a few things. One, Andreas Borgman hasn't been very good. I know he had a good course in the NHL. And I do see uh, some people suggesting that he's he should be in the NHL. Um, 
No, I mean Rosen's been been much better than him this year. I'm comfortable saying that. Um, not to take away from from Borgman, he's a fine AHL player, and, and you could have him as an emergency call up if needed. But uh, he just hasn't been the same uh, the same level as Rosen this year. Uh, I know he had a good Corsi last year in the NHL, but sheltered minutes. I mean, I just don't think uh, he's a player who should be in the NHL right now. Um, plain and simple. And then for Sandine, he doesn't have like whether or not he has a good relative Corsi. I mean, he's getting compared to Callie Rosen because they both play the left side, uh, but he's been phenomenal. Uh, just a fantastic puck mover. Uh, the question is, there's a little bit of concern about foot speed there. I think in terms of lateral quickness, I, I'd like to see him. Uh, he can get burned, almost like Dermot gets burned at times, just because he's so aggressive. Um, so I would like to see him get a step quicker, but there's plenty of time for that. Um, but just a phenomenal puck mover, very smart, uh, so good at passing off his backhand. Um, and Lilligren's been fine. We haven't seen him play in a while just because he's been hurt, but uh, he's almost the exact opposite of, of Sandine where uh, the lateral quickness is there. I think he's going to be a fantastic uh, neutral zone defender just because of the speed. Um, but he doesn't have the same edge work as, as Sandine. He's he's not as sure-footed, and he's not as sure-handed with the puck. So it's just a matter of can he clean up his game uh I'm hoping to that he gets back and healthy soon, just so we can can see what he can do with this role because he's going to be 20 at the start of next year. I'd like to see him at least turn some heads in training camp. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, do we have anything else to to add before we head out? I I don't because all I do is ramble lately. But I did have a thoughts-ish posts that went up yesterday. I'm hoping the Arizona Coyotes get blown out tonight by the Leafs, and everyone feels way more optimistic in short order. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I hope this podcast becomes, like, very swiftly out of date because, like, <laughs> all, all the things that we've mentioned have been resolved. Um, Kevin, anything to add for you? Uh, for you? I think I'm going to the game tonight. So oh, nice. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. My uh, brother texted me, so we'll see. Uh, maybe I'll I'll bring a sign saying get Nylander off the fourth line. <laughs> I'll start a chant. I'll try. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's gonna be kind of worried. It's like put Nylander with Matthews because they have a good historical. Yeah, I don't know. We'll get it to work. work but... We'll get it to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um. So thank you, Kevin, for for joining us. It's always fun to have you on. Uh, you can find all of mine and Fullman's stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can find also a lot of Kevin's stuff there. He also writes at Maple Leafs Hot Stove. Um, a clearly inferior site that has a couple good writers. <laughs> um, that, that's a joke, to be fair. I don't want to start any least Twitter wars. Um, they're a good site. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.